As a teenager, I worked for the Western Geophysical Company of America in Bass Strait. Undertaking seismic testing, we were searching for gas. We scoured the length and breadth of Bass Strait. And I can tell you from experience, hard experience, that Bass Strait is one of the wildest sections of ocean waters in the world. We had been contracted to do the work by Woodside. Woodside has grown to such an extent that it's now one of the world's giant oil and gas companies. I was told at the time, and this was in the mid-1960s, that I could buy shares in that Australian company for just five cents. But being a teenager and unaware of how the share market worked or what it was actually for, I didn't buy any shares. I don't regret that. I'm pleased I'm no longer implicated in the dark side. Hey, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm so pleased you've come along and joined me in this new episode. I'm your host, Robert McLean. It's so great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We begin with the audio from a piece in the Melbourne Age by Jacinta Burton. It has the headline, WA Symphony Orchestra, Silent on Woodside, Alliance as Deal Expires. Let's listen to that story now. WA Symphony Orchestra, Silent on Woodside, Alliance as Deal Expires. The West Australian Symphony Orchestra has refused to be drawn on the future of its long-standing relationship with oil and gas giant Woodside amid revelations its partnership deal lapsed and is yet to be renewed. Despite having been a constant feature as a lead partner for almost a decade, Woodside's logo was notably absent from the list of corporate sponsors in WASO's 2024 season brochure. Woodside insisted its conspicuous absence from the Elite Arts Institution's annual events calendar was a non-issue. Woodside and WASO intend to continue their partnership, and the details of arrangements for the next partnership term are the subject of ongoing discussions, expected to be finalised in coming weeks, a Woodside spokeswoman said. But WASO has taken a vow of silence, refusing to comment on why a new deal was not inked and why its brochure was published without the trademark of one of its largest donors. A WASO spokesperson told WA Today the organisation would not be making any comment whatsoever on its relationship with Woodside, not even to confirm whether the alliance would continue. A source close to the deal told WA Today that the previous partnership agreement expired at the end of 2023, and that the 2024 program was printed in the lead-up to Christmas. The news comes on the eve of what was set to be the partnership's 10th anniversary. The Elite Arts Institution operated at a cost of more than $18.5 million in 2022, collecting just over $4.5 million in ticket sales. While the organisation does not disclose how much funding Woodside has handed over as a lead sponsor, its latest annual report indicates 7% of its revenue, or $1.5 million, is derived from sponsors. It also receives generous donations from those in Perth's upper echelons, collecting philanthropic donations to the tune of $1.9 million. But the organisation is buoyed by government grants, which totaled $10.2 million in 2022 more than of its revenue. Woodside Board Chairman Richard Goida and Chief Executive Meg O'Neill are Board Chairman and Board Member, respectively, of WASO, and each personally handed over more than $25,000 each in the past 12 months. Prominent WA businesswoman Janet Holmes, a court AC, 
Pete Chair Tony Lennon and former Rio Tinto boss Sam Walsh are among others to hand over more than $25,000 in the past 12 months. Spokesman Emil Davey for Disrupt Burrup Hub, which opposes the expansion of Woodside's oil and gas development in WA's northwest over climate change concerns, claimed the absence of Woodside's trademark was evidence its brand was broken. This is vindication for sustained and disruptive mobilizing from artists, musicians and campaigners who have shown that the public won't stand for toxic emissions from Woodside's Burrup Hub. Artist and musician Amber Fresh of the band Rabbit Island, who led the call for WASO to drop Woodside as a sponsor almost two years ago on environmental grounds, said it would take rejecting projects such as the Burrup Hub to shift the dial on climate. These massively polluting companies chuck a few pennies to the arts or the nippers, junior surf lifesavers, and think they can keep creating projects which will, without any doubt, contribute to the destruction of what we love, she said. Less than a fortnight ago, fringe world organizer Artrage confirmed it had severed its remaining ties with the $60 billion company, its principal sponsor and naming rights partner. The decision had been foreshadowed 18 months earlier when Artrage confirmed the oil and gas company would transition from a fringe world sponsor with naming rights to one of Artrage itself with the funding to be directed to diversifying the organization's income streams. The arts body had been under increasing pressure to cut Woodside loose via a sustained campaign by Fossil Free Arts WA featuring protest performances, a petition, and onstage disruptions to distance itself from the company. Nipper's parents have also called on surf life-saving Western Australia to drop its sponsorship arrangement with Woodside with a petition having reached 5,000 signatures and the deal up for its five-year renewal in 2024. In September, the Fremantle Dockers extended their funding partnership with Woodside for another two years, despite a protest levelled by sections of its membership base. Woodside is also principal sponsor of WA's youth orchestras and a sponsor of the WA Ballet. Greenpeace Australia Pacific has been making some noise about what Woodside's been up to off the West Australian coast. And here is some audio from a film clip, Don't Be a Tosser. Rainbow Warrior, Rainbow Warrior, this is Sam Pilot, Sam Pilot, our chip channel 16. Sim Pilot, Sim Pilot, this is the Rainbow Warrior. Rainbow Warrior, Sam Pilot, um, your workboats have entered an exclusion safety zone and we ask that you move from the area immediately. Uh, Sim Pilot, noted your message. We are just here to document Woodside's Nagura, rise of turret mooring. Exposed to threat, Woodside poses to our oceans and our wildlife. We are a peaceful organization here to simply document the beauty of our natural world and its threats to it. Woodside's leaving like all this junk out in the ocean and it's full of chemicals. We just bring it to light what's offshore to let the public know what's going on. Oh man, it's like a super pod. 
so the team just came back. The action was done to perfection. There's a message that's been sent to those polluters at Woodside and then a super pod of, I don't know, 200, 300 spinner dolphins did a swim past <laughs> as if to say, we are with you. Um, life fights for life. It's hard not to feel on the wave of something here. It's very precious. You'll find the link to that short film clip in the show notes. Now we have a story from The Atlantic by Hannah Ritchie. The headline for the story is, A slightly hotter world could still be a better one. Hannah Ritchie is the deputy editor of Our World in Data, a researcher at the University of Oxford and the author of Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. Let's listen to that story now. You're listening to A Slightly Hotter World Could Still Be a Better One by Hannah Ritchie, published on the 17th of January, 2024. This audio article was produced by Eleven Labs and NOAA, News Over Audio, using an AI voice. One of the only things we can say for certain about the future is that it will be hotter. Humanity is nowhere close to eliminating carbon emissions, meaning that even if every government on the planet went all in on tackling climate change tomorrow, temperatures would keep rising for many years. This is often taken to mean that the future will necessarily be worse for humanity than the present. Leading publications refer casually to the climate apocalypse. People earnestly debate the morality of bringing children into the world. A letter from a young reader to the New York Times ethics column captured the sentiment well. Is it selfish to have children knowing full well that they will have to deal with a lower quality of life thanks to the climate crisis and its many cascading effects? like increased natural disasters, food shortages, greater societal inequity, and unrest. This attitude, that a world with 1.7 degrees Celsius of warming will be worse than one with 1.6 degrees, which will be worse than one with 1.5 degrees, and so on, is understandable. But it is mistaken. A lower quality of life for our children is far from certain, because global warming is not the only driver of change. Humanity would be far better off without climate change than with it, of course. But that doesn't mean we're doomed to a miserable future. Even in a warming world, we still have the power to make things better. The world has warmed by almost 1.3 degrees Celsius since the Industrial Revolution, with most of that coming in the past 50 years. During the same period, life for most people has improved. Warming may have slowed down progress, but did not stop it. Child mortality rates have plummeted. Mothers are at a much lower risk of dying in childbirth. People live longer. They're generally better fed. More have access to clean water, sanitation, electricity, and clean fuels for cooking. Most kids now get the opportunity to go to school. This progress has been very unequal. Child mortality rates in some of the worst-off places are 20 times higher than in rich countries. But prospects for children have typically improved across the board. Even in low-income countries, the rates have fallen by two-thirds since 1990. This progress has happened not because of climate change, but in spite of it. Humanity's ability to prepare for, adapt to, and mitigate risk has outpaced climbing temperatures. Crop yields across the world would be higher without climate change, yet they still have increased dramatically. Famines used to be common, but are much rarer as a result of political change, decolonization, and massive gains in agricultural productivity. Deaths from disasters are much lower than they were in the past not because climate change isn't making these events worse, but because we've become even more resilient to them. 
conditions for malaria have worsened in some regions, yet deaths have fallen because of increased access to bed nets, anti-malarial drugs, and other measures. In a world without climate change, these would have improved even more, but they have still improved. The question is whether this progress will continue. Some dismiss the idea that any future could be better in a warmer world. It's all downhill toward inevitable collapse. In one recent global survey, a majority of young people said that they agreed with the statement, humanity is doomed. Others argue that what's inevitable is continued human progress. Just look at how much has been achieved in the past century. Both views are too simplistic. Those who extrapolate past progress to future success are making big assumptions. Because we've experienced 1.3 degrees Celsius of warming already, you might imagine that an extra 0.7 degrees of warming won't be so bad. The problem is that the impacts of climate change are not always linear. The effects at 2 degrees are more than double those at 1 degree, and they increase the chance of reaching irreversible tipping points. But the other extreme school of thought, that every fraction of warming will make life worse, is also misguided. It will make the effects of climate change more severe, which is why we should fight against each increment. But the ultimate effect on human life depends on how we respond. Human progress can continue in a slightly warmer world. To be clear, none of this is to say we should just accept warming. We might be able to keep pace with 1.7, 1.8, or 1.9 degrees of warming, but not with 3 degrees. We desperately need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and keep temperatures as low as we can. Our current trajectory looks bleak, but it's improving. We're on a better path than we were a decade ago, and the cost of low-carbon energy is still falling. We also need to protect ourselves from the harm that we know will come. We are in a race with a warming climate, and as the consequences accelerate, we need to run faster than we have before. Heat stress could reduce crop yields in some regions by 30%, for example, driving an increase in global hunger. But we can take steps to counter that, such as developing drought and temperature-sensitive crops, improving access to irrigation, and protecting against pests. Yields in many regions of the world have doubled, tripled, or more over the past 50 years, and big yield gaps could still be filled with the right tools. Or take disasters, such as flooding, droughts, and coastal storms, which could become more severe. In a world that gets warmer without making other changes, we would expect deaths to rise. But if we can improve early warning systems, build protective infrastructure, improve recovery responses, and lift people out of poverty, we have a shot at lowering the human toll even as disasters get worse. Similarly, higher temperatures could increase the spread of malaria. But if we can accelerate our prevention and treatment measures, deaths could keep falling. Better yet, two vaccines now exist to fight malaria, which could save tens of thousands of children every year if the obstacles to distribution are overcome. These innovations could outweigh the increased burden of a warmer world. This will not be easy. We will need investment and coordination. But that's precisely why messages that we're all doomed are unhelpful. The effects of climate change will not be equally distributed, and to imply otherwise is to divert attention from where it's needed the most. A world in which the average person is better off, but hundreds of millions of the poorest get left behind, is unacceptable. Climate change could create even bigger inequalities, as the rich buy their way out of harm. As an environmental scientist, I would never deny that climate change will have severe, possibly devastating impacts, nor that we can simply adapt our way out of any level of warming. The world urgently needs steep emissions cuts to avert worst-case scenarios. 
What I am saying is that a world at 1.8 degrees of warming could still be better than our 1.3 degrees warmer world today. Whether we build that better future is still up to us. That was, A Slightly Hotter World Could Still Be a Better One, by Hannah Ritchie. And next we have a story from the Melbourne Age, and this time it's written by Mike Foley. And the headline for the story is, The Weather Hangover That Is Delivering a Sodden Summer. The story begins, The Bureau of Meteorology waited months longer than other international weather agencies to declare El Nino event, spurring criticism for its reluctance to put the nation on notice that the drought-inducing weather cycle was underway. When the Bureau finally did declare an El Nino in September, crucial factors needed to spur hot and dry weather in eastern Australia were already failing to materialise. A sudden summer has since swamped Australia's eastern seaboard. The Bureau faces a loss-loss scenario, where its initial reluctance to make an official El Nino declaration cast it as a global outlier among experts, and now the unexpected widespread heavy rain and storms have left Australians wondering what happened to their expectation of a hot, dry summer. Here we have another podcast and its vaults with David Roberts. This time it's transitioning of fossil gas in Australia. David has a conversation with Victoria's Minister for Energy, Environment and Climate Change, Lily D'Ambrosio. Let's have a listen now and there'll be a link for the entire event in the show notes. Greetings, everyone. This is Volts for January 17th, 2024. Transitioning off of fossil gas in Australia. I'm your host, David Roberts. When I visited Melbourne on my trip through Australia last year, just outside my hotel window was an array of what looked like miniature smokestacks. Periodically, they would belch great synchronous gusts of blue flame into the sky. The effect was startling and quite visually striking, but I kept thinking, is that fossil gas? Listener, it was. Victoria, the state that contains Melbourne down in the southeastern corner of Australia, is the country's second smallest state geographically, but its second most populated It's most densely populated, and most importantly for our purposes here, it's most dependent on fossil gas. Fully 80% of Victoria homes are connected to the fossil gas network, and that number is rising, even in the face of the state's ambitious decarbonization targets. On top of that, the state is also home to considerable oil and gas production. The state's labor government confronted this situation last year with a gas substitution roadmap, a package of policies that would combine restrictions on new gas hookups, tightened energy efficiency standards, and subsidies for residential electrification. Most notably, it was forthright about the fact that the state would need to transition off of fossil gas entirely at some point, and that these were the first steps that would be followed by others. Last month saw the release of the first major update 
to the roadmap, which seemed like a good excuse to reach out and talk it over with someone there. So I contacted Lily D'Ambrosio, who has been a member of the Victorian Legislative Assembly since 2002 and is currently the state's Minister for Energy, Environment, and Climate Change. We talked about what the roadmap says, some of the problems it has not yet addressed, the role of biomethane and hydrogen in a decarbonized state, the politics of fossil gas, and much more. It was educational and even somewhat inspirational. All right, then, uh, let's get to it. Lily D'Ambrosio, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure, David. Thank you. So I guess I want to start uh, with a big picture question before we get into some of the details about the plan. I think especially for someone looking from the outside, <laughs> from the U.S., <laughs> I see Victoria here. It's the second smallest physically, but the second most populated um, Australian state. It is the most intensive gas user of any state in Australia. There's more people hooked up to the gas system in Victoria than in any other state. And it's one of the top fossil gas producers in Australia. So just looking from the outside, I think, how is it in the state that uses and produces so much gas, you have found the political <laughs> wherewithal to declare pretty publicly and explicitly that you're Transitioning off gas, what is the political answer to that riddle? Well, look, thank you. That, that's a really good way to frame it. But can I also add to it, not only have we got the biggest challenge when it comes to fossil gas, it's also the fact that we have had an electricity system which has been the most carbon intensive because it's relied almost totally on lignite, that is brown coal, compared to any other state uh... in the country. Uh, it's been the dirtiest form of electricity generation. And in fact, we've been a net exporter of that dirty, polluting brown coal electricity generation. And we're also a net exporter of the gas. So um, it's a double challenge for us. Now, the political will comes from a number of realities. One is that you've really got to be very clear about what your ambition is. I mean, things don't happen by accident, certainly not big transformative changes in an economy, none of that ever happens by accident, certainly not any that are ambitious in a positive net sense. <laughs> so uh, what we've had in Victoria is effectively in the last 20 years, majority of that time, other than about four of those years, uh, it's been led by a Labor government. And Labor government has been very committed to climate change, uh, to the development of renewable electricity, and at the same time is delivering net benefits to consumers, especially those who are most vulnerable. Because David, as you will know, and we can certainly have a further conversation, is that you can't really manage a transition in a way that is ambitious if you leave a whole bunch of people behind, those that don't have the means to be able to come along for the journey. And that's why we've been different in Victoria. It's been a deliberate strategy. It's been about cost of living, as it has been about uh, reducing our emissions, as it has been about creating those tens of thousands of new jobs that come from building renewable energy. And of course, there's a lot more to it than that, but very much we've been able to sell this agenda, this program, 
by being able to ensure that Victorians aren't left behind as part of the transition. So you think you've done enough of that in the lead up to this to build up enough trust and unity to take this big step? Well, unity is a, a different thing. If you're asking the question <laughs> about unity across Now, please don't forget, you'll find the link to that Vault's podcast episode in the show notes. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. I'd love to hear from you. I want to know what you think about this podcast. Good or bad, please let me know. And you can contact me via email at number 7 at iCloud.com. Now, please tell me good or bad. Don't hold back. Also, I'd love you to be a guest on this podcast. I want to hear your voice on this podcast. And so to make that happen, please contact me at that same email address, number 7 at iCloud.com and I can contact you and we can have a chat about your views on the climate crisis. Also, please share this with your friends. It's important that we share this with as many people as we possibly can because we all need to know exactly what's happening with the climate crisis and therefore be able to respond in some way. Yes, do something to mitigate the climate crisis and prepare people to deal with what's ahead. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, And be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. I almost forgot to say that my screen is still alive with stories about the climate crisis, and I'll put as many as I can in the show notes. So please go there, check them out, think about it, and do what you can do to counter the climate crisis. Act from where you are. We can do nothing more than that. Do what we can do from where we are. So, take care and stay safe.